It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Max Verstappen is king of the ring, claiming victory in Austria at a canter and sweeping the weekend for points to extend his title lead. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is round nine, the Austrian Grand Prix. For a precious few moments in both the sprint and the race, you might have allowed yourself to believe Max Verstappen and even Red Bull Racing were set to be challenged. Sergio Perez pipped the Dutchman off the line on Saturday, and on Sunday Charles Leclerc held the lead for several laps after a virtual safety car pit stop gave him a small time advantage. But Perez was dispatched in just four corners, and Leclerc's time in top spot lasted only 10 forlorn laps. Verstappen's pace was overwhelming, and he easily brushed both of them aside. The Dutchman was in such good form, he even talked the team into a pit stop with three laps to go just to take the point for fastest lap from his own teammate. It was as complete a weekend as they come, and to talk us through it, I'm joined by Chris Medland from Racer Magazine and one of the hosts of sister podcast, Pit Pass F1. Chris, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Thank you very much. And I'm the F1 correspondent for Racer Magazine, by the way. Mm. Not just correspondent. I, I do more than correspond. I do F1 correspondence. <laughs> well, in some ways that could be limiting. You could correspond about anything. Reviews about hotels. Uh, sometimes. Although I try not to do my travel woes on social media, but I nearly did on Sunday night after how late that got. But anyway, that's that's a discussion for later in the pod. Completely different, yes. Well, you can save that one for all those looking forward to uh, more talk about track limits. Maybe later, <laughs> maybe later on. This was, I mean, I feel like I can pre-record this at the start of every episode. Another very big win for Max Verstappen, Red Bull Racing. Championship lead extended. And then I can get like an AI to do the number of points. In this instance, it's 81. But to look at the Grand Prix in particular, let's go straight to sort of the main, the meat of this. There might have been a brief moment, for those viewing, uh, around about lap 14, when it seemed like there might be some promise that this was going to turn into something other than a Max Verstappen win. Nico Hulkenberg retired with what looked like an engine problem, virtual safety car. Ferrari responded by bringing both cars in. And this is sort of like the crux of the race. So I want to cut into this in a couple of different ways. And I want to start actually with Carlos Sainz. Before this moment, he was arguing about being yeah, that he should be let past Charles Leclerc. He seemed to be the faster driver behind... It's not the first time Ferrari's taken a really disciplined approach to their drivers racing. In Canada, only a couple of weeks ago, a sort of similar story. Is this like a knuckling down of Ferrari, considering the criticism they've got for the last 18 months or maybe even many years? Potentially. It was funny because there's a point later on in the race as well, wasn't there, when uh, Leclerc was asked about a three-stop and he was like, nope. Mm. And they were like, okay. And uh, <laughs> doing my post-race radio show, they were like, oh, you know, which team... Like asks their driving and for his input input like that, and then uh, has to rely on his response. And I was thinking, actually, Ferrari have normally done the wrong thing in that sense, and kind of said they're not too sure, asked the driver, and then ignored the driver and done the other thing, and it's been wrong. So in this case, at least, yeah, they've gone for something clear, and they've been like, this is what we're doing, and we're sticking to it. We don't care what you say. Like like nobody has any doubt in their mind. So that that aspect I think was good. Uh, whether they quite got it right. Not so sure, especially because one of the main things they'd said before the race, Jock Clear was talking about 
about it before the race was if they could keep the pressure on Verstappen, it could be a very interesting race. But the main thing they had going for them was two cars versus one Red Bull. So they could do something different with each car. And then they didn't do it. No, they did exactly the same thing and much to the detriment of one of the drivers, Carlos Sainz, who was stuck behind, was forced into a double stack during that VSC. I guess if you did the like strict maths on it, the seconds he lost maybe are the same as the seconds he would have lost under a normal pit stop, but nonetheless it puts them on the same strategy. And he was kind of a bit fired up afterwards. He's been fired up the last couple of weeks, in fact, Carlos Sainz, really going out there, uh, saying you know he's upset with the strategy, obviously, the way Ferrari played it. Was that sort of like the forgotten element of Ferrari here? The fact that, okay, they seem like maybe they're turning a bit of a corner. Charles Leclerc was pretty happy, got on the podium, but that actually it's still a two-car thing that they're not quite nailing? Yeah, Science is very annoyed because he's not had a podium this season yet, so he was really keen for that. He performed well in the sprint on the Saturday, and yeah, he just felt quicker. He, he knew the rules. He knew he wasn't meant mm-hmm. to be allowed to get past Charles in the first part of the race, but he felt that he had a lot more pace in hand and it was hurting him. And then because of that, as you say, double stacking, not a great move. But also they did that and did it slowly. So both stops, <laughs> I think, were nearly five seconds. So not only had Science kind of the damage of having to stack behind Charles anyway, he then had to wait longer because Charles' pit stop was too long. Then his own pit stop was too long. And it did cost him track position that lost him way more time. Whereas he'd have gained track position and been able to use that pace he seemed to have uh, if they'd have kept him out. And yeah, I just feel like there was... There was not the decision to go, okay, this will work for one and not for the other, but we're giving both a chance. And and instead went, okay, we'll just guarantee that that one is our, our lead car, essentially, has got this right uh, in the form of Charles. And it, and it did mean that Carlos was playing second fiddle from essentially the first lap when he was told he, he couldn't overtake. So, yeah, I think that's why there's legitimate frustration there because Sainz I think was the more comfortable driver over the weekend. The only time we saw Leclerc quicker was in qualifying. Uh, and even so... Sainz still put it third on the grid. So the gaps were small, but on, on most sessions, it was Sainz that was the uh, the quicker car. And as you say, a bit frustrating from his point of view then that it seemed like Ferrari only had the capacity to focus on one. And we'll talk about Sergio Perez a little bit later, but it doesn't. I can't help but feel like the the ball or the eye was taken off the ball, the Perez ball in this situation. The eye was taken off the Perez <laughs> uh, by Ferrari's second strategy, if you like. I can't help but wonder, though, then on the other hand, whether that's just because for so many races this season, we haven't seen Perez cut through. You know, imagine if it was the other way around, was Verstappen coming up through the grid, how much more attuned to that second Red Bull car the Ferrari strategy might have been. And I mean, that's something Perez got to rebuild, I suppose. But I wonder how much the last few races are sort of canny against Perez in a race picture. Yeah, it was very late, I think, that Ferrari uh, suddenly turned around to Leclerc and went, Perez is our threat here. We've got to <laughs> got to cover him off. And you're like, yeah, he's he has been for a while. In fact, he was from the second that they made those pit stops under the VSC because Perez didn't. It was only the Red Bulls and, and Bottas, I think, who didn't make a stop then, who hadn't already made one, if that made sense. Uh, so it was a bit strange. Uh, they were the only guys, I think, on mediums as well to to not stop at that point but that should have instantly said to Ferrari okay Perez is gaining a load of track position he's going to be in a place where he can use the car's pace which is clearly good he doesn't have to worry about overtaking people he's getting those positions for free it yeah that's how early it should have been clear to them that both drivers were going to be under threat from him uh, and it does seem like they probably just weren't paying attention to that car at that point in some ways maybe admirable because it meant that Ferrari were actually thinking oh can we get to Verstappen with the strategy can we influence his race can we actually be in the fight for a win here uh, and 
Sadly, that proved not to be true. But at the time, I actually did wonder. You did think, oh, have they got this right? And have Red Bull got it wrong? Because they have gone completely different way compared to everybody else. But uh, it's the hope that kills you, isn't it? Yes, well, like all that false hope from Canada, right? They made the great call everyone thought was going to be an embarrassment. Worked out for them. This week, not an embarrassment at least. Just didn't work out in the way they expected. But sort of like you alluded to... I mean, in retrospect, there was no beating Max, but you can appreciate the fact that they were going for it because the strategy at least meant Leclerc, at a minimum, was in the pit stop window. And this is where we got that little bit of, yeah, I guess false hope in retrospect, a little bit of intrigue in the race around about lap 14 when these stops were starting to be made. It was tempting to think at that point that the race was on. I think that if we want to consider all of the various demoralizing parts of this race, it was that afterwards Max Verstappen said, yeah, we saw them pit and just didn't really feel a need to do anything about that and just continue on their own race. I mean, it's it's the luxury you get for having the quickest car, isn't it? It makes your life so much easier in so many ways. And it is something that Verstappen himself has uh, openly said when he was fighting with uh, Ferraris behind Mercedes in the past and uh, when he was in a Toro Rosso, that certain things you have to do differently to get a result, certain risks you have to take, the way you have to drive. Now, he's he's driving beautifully, but at the same time, he doesn't need to push the limits to the same extent anyone else does because he's got the car underneath him that means those risks aren't necessary, that he's still going to be quicker than people. So uh, it all kind of becomes like a the opposite of a vicious cycle uh, and it feeds itself. And, and yeah, we just saw it from Red Bull. They have the confidence then to go, this is the quickest way to the end of the race. And we are quick enough that we can stick to it, even if there's a curveball thrown at us. So, yeah, I mean, you could say at least it shows that they don't panic either in that situation. I think we have seen it a few times maybe under the Mercedes dominance that they would actually throw away a a race result or maybe make life harder for themselves because they would over respond to an issue or or a moment in a race uh, and see other people doing something and think, oh, we should be doing that instead of uh, just sticking to their guns because their car performance is going to get them out of trouble. So, uh, yeah, Red Bull seem to have really found the sweet spot in all all factors. I mentioned the Ferrari pit stops and how slow those were when they double stacked. Uh, I think Verstappen's pit stops were all two and a half seconds or quicker and including the last one, which was the one that actually carried a little bit of pressure. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're just so in tune everywhere that it's... It's hard to beat something that's that's performing that well in every aspect of the team. Ferrari this weekend, it seems like they did start a little bit of a turnaround procedure here, right? Or in the last couple of weekends, in fact, Canada was also quite promising. It was a little bit of a a little bit of an outlier circuit. I always feel self-conscious saying that considering how many tracks we have and how many of them probably can be considered outliers at this point in time. But uh, nonetheless, two races in a row now, the cars looked okay in race pace most importantly. That's sort of been one of the major weaknesses. Uh, and there's no taking that away from Ferrari, I suppose. Regardless of what mistakes they might have made in the end, I guess they were minor. They got at least one podium. They were the second quickest car this weekend. There's still, I guess, no escaping this massive gap at the end. It was 35 laps, I think, uh, towards the end of the race between Verstappen's um, first and last pit stop. And the gap was about 24 seconds when he made that last pit stop. That's like seven tenths of a second a lap around a pretty short circuit. Why is it that... Because this is something I, I suppose a lot of people must be wondering. We've talked for so many weeks about Mercedes upgrades, Aston Martin upgrades, Ferrari upgrades. They're all massive upgrades. Some of them are concept-changing upgrades. And Red Bull's bringing not that much in the grand scheme of things. And yet, seven-tenths of a second feels like it's as big as it's ever been. Yeah, it's a little bit strange. I think one thing we've got to look at is the way the strategy's played out in that Verstappen did just get to do the perfect ideal strategy. And Ferrari didn't. They were trying to do something different to 
put pressure on or whatever it may have been. But if you think the clerk's first stint was so much shorter, which meant his middle stint needed to be so much longer on the mediums. And he will have done some management there, looked after them a little bit. Sainz was then in traffic, so wasn't getting to, to show his pace properly. So Leclerc to Verstappen wasn't actually a fair comparison in terms of outright pace because Verstappen was able to go... Okay, he was cruising, but his stint lengths were exactly as you'd want. They could minimise the time on the hard in case they were going to struggle on that. Uh, go back to the medium later on as well and and push them pretty pretty well because that first stint was 24 laps, but also had some VSC in there uh, and safety car, didn't it? So it had two kind of periods to look after the tyres. So you, you, I think you saw kind of, if, if Ferrari had run the exact same strategy of Verstappen, I actually think that, that gap would have been smaller, but at no point would have Leclerc been ahead of Verstappen. Uh, you wouldn't have had that crossover point of their strategies. Uh, so they might have been slightly closer, but I think it's just a case as well. as Red Bull have got something that's very um, manageable from their point of view. They know their car. They know its limitations. By not changing it too much, they've learned exactly how to get the most out of this exact package. And as others start to add things, they tend to be trying to address issues, but that might create an issue somewhere else uh, it might mean that they've got a car that works on certain tracks doesn't work on other ones red bull know exactly with their baseline where it won't work where it will work uh, i kind of feel like it's again by having that performance they can focus on other things that their rivals can't their rivals need to maybe take some risks with the way they set their car up i think the clerk himself said that the rear end he wasn't happy with in the race and, and that they didn't get it quite right uh, so he thinks there's actually more to come from the ferrari compared to what we've seen in austria didn't hear that from Verstappen. He was very happy with his car's handling. So, yeah, I think it's it's just when that pressure's off a bit and you don't have to take the risks and you maybe leave yourself that tiny bit more margin, you can just find a bit more consistency. And the best way to describe it would be that Red Bull maybe perform at 98% at every venue, whereas Ferrari maybe are at 90% at one and 100% at another. And when they're at 100%, they look great because they're that little bit closer to Red Bull. But when they're down at 90, you get the bigger gaps like this. That envelope of performance i guess is what we saw in the last three laps right this stop for fastest lap it is it's probably not quite unprecedented but it's pretty rare that a race leader a has that kind of margin uh, maybe not so rare this year but generally fairly rare a leader has that margin and then commits to doing uh, an act that is worth one point in the championship if they don't already have that point i suppose what did you read into that play overall? The arguing, or not arguing, but rather, I guess, debating over team radio between Verstappen and the pit wall and the fact that I guess it was on his mind at all considering that the race was cruising towards a pretty straightforward finish for him. I think that's one of the reasons it was on his mind is because he didn't have a lot else to think about or worry about. So he's like, well, what's missing today? And and he does seem to value the fastest lap more than just the point it brings. I think to Verstappen being quickest at things, being on pole position, being fastest in a race, those are the details that he really likes those stats. Wins are big for him as well, but to say, yeah, look, I was the quickest guy. Like If you if you said who who's the fastest driver, not who's the best driver, who's the fastest, he kind of wants some of those accolades. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that was part of it. It was the ultimate flex in terms of confidence and performance to go, okay, we've got such a, a margin here. We can afford to throw away that whole lead and only come out, it was two seconds, the gap between him and Leclerc starting the final lap. And it also showed that when Verstappen came out, he was certain the team wouldn't screw up the pit stop. Even the team were like, well, it's a risk we don't think we should take. And he's like, it's not a risk because he had such faith in the team getting it right. Uh, he had faith in himself for preparing the tyres and getting the lap together, uh, not making a mistake. But 
he would I think he lost 1.1 1.2 seconds maybe more to Leclerc on the outlap he was letting Leclerc come at him essentially he was like dangling a carrot not intentionally but Leclerc would have seen this gap closing and thought what if he makes a mistake on this final lap I'm going to be in striking distance or if he has a problem but Verstappen was just preparing the car ready to go for it for his for his final lap and obviously put over three seconds into him on that final tour so uh, I just think again it's a sign of the confidence he has both in the car but in the team uh, and the way that everything does work and if dare I say if that had been a Ferrari in that situation and they had the buffer to do it I think they would never even consider it because as I mentioned they did two pit stops that were over four seconds and they would be worried that oh if we just have a a bad stop for any reason we could end up looking stupid so uh, that didn't even cross Red Bull's mind and I think they said it being their home race uh, that they had the kind of spirit of Dietrich Matisitz in their in their mind and he was always like go for it you know what's where's the fun in being boring and playing playing it safe so um, that maybe came into it too but it's easy to say that when you've got such a comfortable lead in both championships uh, and the constructors one is probably the one that would have stopped them in the past even if Verstappen said I want it if they said it's not worth us losing the race win here um, because there's points for the constructors championship that would go begging uh, then that might have been a different argument but because they're so comfortably ahead there too because no one team can firmly chase them on their own with both cars uh, then yeah it kind of made it a more simple choice I think for them mm, and who can forget that Max Verstappen alone is leading the constructors championship at the moment a remarkable statistic Better not to think about some of these numbers. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Sergio Perez, very Brohaus, the same thing, reverse side of the coin. Uh, the battle he had with Carlos Sainz towards the end of the race, having essentially fast-forwarded his strategy a little bit thanks to the virtual safety car, getting that clean air, as you mentioned, and managed to climb up, climb up to just behind the podium positions in that last into the race. That battle was one of the highlights, really. Uh, I mean, one car had better pace, but maybe you could argue Carlos Sainz had that little bit of extra determination to try and hold that position in vain, ultimately. Didn't matter anyway, had all those penalties to serve many hours after the race. What I thought interesting here, though, was this gamesmanship around the DRS line. Oh, what a sentence. Motorsport, old motorsport fans would love that one. (laughs) Uh, But it's not the first time we've seen something like that. So here it was happening at Turn 3, the run up the hill. Um, We've seen it at Saudi Arabia, most notably. Other tracks feature this kind of game where the drivers are, are really aware that whoever crosses first is going to lack or have the advantage of DRS. How integral has this become to the way drivers are racing, particularly in sort of last stints where they know this is their opportunity? Yeah, I think it's become a a real tactic if you've got two cars that are closely enough matched that one could hold off the other. And, you know, you rarely see it in battles when, for example, Verstappen coming through to back into the lead uh, or most cars that Perez was overtaking. But when it was, yeah, in a fight where... Sainz showed he could hold him off uh, at certain times and and use DRS to stay in that fight and stay ahead, then, yeah, it becomes crucial. And I think Perez was a bit slow to recognising that uh, during that race, uh, that, that Sainz was playing some of these games as well and that actually he, he was going to have to be a bit smarter about getting the move done. But then you had Sainz complaining that Perez was trying to intimidate him. And it's like, well, that is probably the role of the car trying to catch and pass you is to intimidate you, force you into a mistake. It's, it's, that's good driving. So, yeah, I think there's some of these aspects are, are quite interesting because Austria was a really good example of where the drivers were allowed to kind of push the limits in the way they race each other a few years ago. It was Leclerc and Verstappen then, and it kind of drew a line in the sand that said, OK, you can be this firm. And the next race, we've got an epic mm. between the two of them again. But that was because they were so closely matched and it's how they had to race. Now, it seems that, you know, aside from uh, Perez coming through fields, like for Verstappen, it's a bit too easy. For other teams, it tends to be track position is king. So you rarely get uh, the uh, the venues 
lend themselves to having to do that with a DRS. But there's a few that do, as you said, Jeddah. Uh, and then we got it here just because of the positioning of the, de the detection point. So, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those that I think everyone has to be aware of, but isn't always... I don't think it's overly used, if that makes sense. I don't think it's something that we have to worry about that, oh, DRS cat and mouse is going to be an issue everywhere we go or in every Grand Prix. But certain times it can be. And I don't think that's a bad thing. There's actually been a bit of a debate uh, recently about well, what if DRS was only able to be used like push to pass an IndyCar and you had to choose when you deploy it? You didn't get to do it every lap you were within a second of someone. But similarly, if you're defending, you could deploy it to defend, but you've got limited numbers through the race to be able to do so. It becomes a tactic. And I think that, again, is then putting a bit more onus on the driver to think about how they race someone else. So this is kind of a more agricultural version of that, I'd say, because of the way that the, the detection points work at the moment. So... Um, I personally actually don't mind it so much. I think it's quite a cool concept that they're, they're really having to think about this and, and think about what the other person's doing rather than the simple push the button, drive straight past in a straight line. So, um, yeah, I I think I lean towards liking it. Oh, I don't disagree. I am I mean, I, you know, obviously we saw the worst version of it, I guess, in Jedra a couple of years ago with Verstappen and Hamilton, but that's really been the only false note for it, I think. Sometimes I even think, I would not that I'd want to see this in Formula 1, but I was massively sceptical for those who watch Formula E of the um, activation zones there, the boost zones. But after watching it a couple of times, because you don't anticipate before you watch it the thinking that goes into the driver having to decide when to do it actually adds just a different element to it because you you've got to appreciate this strategic thing to it and so i can kind of see you know that, that why that that works for the sport in a way um, eventually worked for sergio perez in this situation once he clued onto it another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And I guess an important race for Sergio as well, and we'll move on after this, but not only from a confidence perspective, but I mean, and this is very hypothetical at this point, but in the situation that Red Bull were to be meaningfully challenged this season, maybe later in the year, considering they're not developing their car as perhaps aggressively some other teams, how important is it that Perez is not constantly executing these recovery drives and more to the point has just the pace by default to sort of be playing a rear gun if in the event Ferrari can in fact field two cars to try and take that approach yeah I think I think it was a crucial race for him in that sense because he's failed to do it as you said uh, in previous Grand Prix and that's against cars that can't challenge Verstappen now it's it's a further in Verstappen's cap that he's getting so much out of that car that I I still think people overplay its dominance. If you look at the gaps in qualifying, uh, when it's raw pace, go for it, then we're seeing they're actually pretty small at times. It's still clearly the quickest car, but not by a second or something like that. In race trim, it does seem to work better and it's well set up for the race, but every team is trying to make a car that is quick in a race. So they're, they're not massively out of the window in terms of uh, how competitive some of the other cars can be. But Verstappen is always just putting them in his rear view pretty quickly. Perez, the the total opposite. And as you say, the, the key's been when when Verstappen's come through the field, how comfortably he's done it and how quickly he's done it. And I think it has shown that maybe Perez's racecraft is maybe lacking slightly. Um, and I don't think it's something we've really focused on too much in the past when we could have, because it's, his tyre usage was always something that everyone talked about being a huge bonus, something that he was very strong at. One 
Verstappen seemed to have negated that when it's been the two of them together at Red Bull. Verstappen seems to have either learned from Perez or just with this current generation of tyre worked out a better way of using it. Uh, and maybe it doesn't suit Perez so much. But that also lends itself to the sort of race that comes to you and you don't have to go and chase it. You don't have to go and put moves on people. You, your strategy is what's going to get you an advantage. Without that, it's kind of showing that he struggles to make progress. And as you say, if those gaps get smaller, then he's only going to struggle even more. So he did need at least one like this to say, I oh, know I, I can do it. I, I can fight my way back from a poor qualifying. But I think it also just shows the importance of him getting his Saturdays together. Uh, and that's more crucial. Like He can remove the issue of whether he struggles to come through the field or not as easily as, as Max by just never putting himself in a position to have to do it. So uh, I think that's probably the lesson he learned more because the sprint showed uh, by having a clean sprint shootout and qualifying at the front, then he had a, a clean race at the front, and and that's all um, Red Bull want to see from him. Mm, clean race through the mist, allegedly, <laughs> after that first lap. But uh, yes, I think that is exactly the, the point he's got to make. And he did have the flu this weekend, so I guess you can maybe maybe be a bit generous about the Friday problem. But we'll wait and see. More races to come before the break. A couple of quick ones before we wrap this one up. Uh, we haven't really talked at all about Aston Martin and Mercedes, which is unusual. Well, Aston Martin's unusual in particular for the start of this season. Quiet races for both of them. Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton were the main ones battling near the front. Largely decided by Lewis Hamilton having to serve a five-second penalty that kind of spaced them out a little bit, but neither was particularly inspired. But I actually want to go back talking about Mercedes to an earlier moment in the weekend in the sprint, uh, where we did actually see, weirdly, some strategy. We're not meant to in the sprint. In fact, it's probably written down somewhere. No strategy in sprint racing, but we saw a little (laughs) bit between the switch from wet tyres to dry tyres as the circuit dried up. It was George Russell uh, who was the first to sort of notice that, set the trend, uh, did it just in time to actually make ground score some points. I thought it was really interesting afterwards, though, that Lewis Hamilton said, and he didn't say it in quite these words, but, I mean, he has so few weaknesses that one of his few weaknesses is he's not really a gambler when it comes to those crossovers. It's not really his territory when it comes to sort of feeling where the track is and and changing tyres at the right time. I just found that really interesting that we... It's so rare, so rarely talking about, I don't know, gaps in Lewis Hamilton's game, I guess, particularly compared to a teammate. Yeah, it, it was quite a, a strange uh, admission, wasn't it? But I think it's one of those where Lewis does accept there are things he's not perfect at. Uh, and also, when you've had such success, again, as we were talking about earlier with Verstappen, the way things come together and the way you can just kind of stick to your guns uh, and with confidence, he's had a big period of his career when he's been able to do that, where he doesn't need to be the first to gamble to change tyres. He doesn't need to go chasing those big gains. So in a weird way, by being out of practice with that, it might make you a bit more averse to taking that risk. Whereas George coming through Williams and then being in an uncompetitive Mercedes has been very much willing to do that and probably attuned to doing that a bit more. So I I always remember his his first qualifying session for Mercedes in Bahrain where he went for it on his uh, final attempt to really try and get himself up the grid and, and messed it up and it meant he ended up eighth when the car should have been further up the, the top 10. And the team said to him, was like, that, you don't do that here. Like, we're a front-running team. You don't need to go and take a risk to try, you know, a glory lap to try and gain a couple of positions. You know, essentially just get the car to where it should be. Like, it's good enough for the fourth row or the third row. Put it on the third row. Don't go and risk being on the fifth row trying to get fourth place or something like that. And uh, yeah, that showed that it was a mindset that needed to change. Maybe... Actually, it was Russell that had the right mindset because Mercedes haven't turned it around so quickly that they need to take more of those risks. So, yeah, it was quite interesting that that Lewis admitted to that. But um, it does kind of 
tally with the way he's gone about his racing, the way his form has been as well. When the car's been better, Lewis has got the results out of it on the whole. Uh, this year, he's just looked a little bit more com- comfortable quicker than George in most venues um, because the car's has been that bit more competitive and he's better at maximising it than, than George has yet to get to. But George has had some higher highs at times, so he's a bit more up and down with it. So I think that's just Lewis kind of saying, well, this approach has worked for me my whole career. I'm the most successful driver in Formula 1, so I'll stick to that. Uh, and yeah, if it ain't broke, don't don't fix it. Yeah, it is hard to argue about that. He only ever has to sort of bring out, the, I guess, references to his many records, and it's very difficult to make an argument. Uh, Lando Norris would be remiss not to mention. Weirdly, though, not really any strategy to talk about here because this was the third fastest car in the Grand Prix, the McLaren was the third fastest McLaren was the third fastest car but it's not sort of like the first time McLaren showed up really well here or Lando Norris has showed up really well here so for those I guess getting excited about the upgrade package you can still be excited but maybe just tone it down slightly until we see I guess the mid-season break and the races afterwards why is it that this track suits Lando Norris and McLaren so well I mean he's never qualified lower than sixth I think it is uh, except for one race in the COVID years and never finished really lower than that either yeah he's been very very impressive there if you think that a couple of podiums he looked in the frame for a podium this weekend as well what's quite funny is Lando says it's because he wasn't very good there in the past in junior categories he kind of one of his early runs he kind of struggled a little bit so he focused on it he made it a, a key thing where he's like right I need to need to get better around that track and I think because it is a short track and there's certain characteristics of it that you need to get right a lot of straight line braking a lot of uh, traction zones acceleration uh, a few downhill um, braking and turning points that are certainly turn four and then the final corner that you can actually gain a lot on the exit of the corners if you're, if you're precise with uh, I think he just had maybe three or four key points to focus on and focused really hard on them as a junior. And he's carried that through. Uh, and maybe then for with an F1 car, maybe it's just that bit harder as a rookie to really pick up how much of it is you and your driving and how much of it is just getting the car set up right or whatever at other venues. This was one he then knew how to be quick around and could focus on that in the F1 car too. So I, I just think it's um, kind of been a carryover from his junior career. But also it, there were certain aspects that suited the McLaren. There are some high-speed corners there where they are good, uh, especially if you think of the last two corners. If you've got a car that is good in mid to high speed and those two corners carry the most risk, uh, you know, how much are you going to risk going through those corners and picking up track limits penalties, which I know we not, try not to bore everyone with today, but... Um, that actually still will give you a gain if you if you can commit more and, and be confident that the car's going to be there underneath you and you're not going to run wide. So uh, I think it almost then gives a bit of a double whammy in certain sections of the track that that your your own confidence adds to the performance of the car that was already there. Uh, and straight line braking of that car as well has been very good. So uh, yeah, I think it all came together with the upgrade as well. And it was, as you say, outright the third quickest car. That's something that really did surprise the team. They they thought maybe Mercedes, they had the edge on because Mercedes has been up and down and struggled there last year, but they expected Aston Martin to, to come at them. And Alonso did come on strong late on, but uh, not strong enough to challenge and beat Norris, who had been fighting with Hamilton, fighting with Sainz. It's not like he'd cruised and protected his race. Uh, he still had enough in such a busy race uh, in hand to keep Alonso at bay. Does the fact, and just comparing these teams briefly, because we don't know exactly how much we should be comparing them. We do need more races to really figure out where McLaren is. I think it probably is ambitious to say it's the third fastest car now, but we also don't know if it will join that front-running group. Maybe this upgrade will be that effective. But looking at that Mercedes and Aston Martin comparison, will those teams take at least a little bit of solace in the fact that both of them seem to have an off race? It's really hard to sort of 
figure out which tracks are working for each one and when they're having good and bad weekends? Is the fact that they were both a bit off the pace at least give them maybe a little bit of optimism that this was just for both of them an odd weekend rather than actually they've been jumped and that the order is changing again? Yeah, I think a little bit. I think we haven't really seen Aston drop the ball too much this season, so it's a surprise when they're a little bit under par. But on a sprint weekend, when you have one practice session to try and set the car up, you have mixed conditions... You know, without that smooth three practice session weekend and and dry all the way through, there's a chance they maybe just didn't quite find the right window with the car. But it was still enough to beat the Mercedes. It, and in race trim, it it was a bit quicker anyway. I think I know Lewis picked up that penalty, but um, yeah, I think Alonso was was coming through. And then with the uh, additional penalty for Sainz, he gained another place there. So you know, he's not a million miles off the Ferrari that had a good weekend or McLaren, as we say, that really suited it. So. For that to be their one of their bad weekends and they still pick up a fifth place, I think Alonso's going to be very, very happy. Uh, and I think it was actually a really good weekend for Stroll until the race itself. Uh, he sort of bogged down, got caught in the uh, on the inside of Turn 1 at the start and lost a load of positions. And until then, he'd shadowed or beaten Alonso and he kind of needed that. So if anything, I think Aston probably walked away and went, OK, like our drivers both looked a bit more comfortable with where the car was at. Sadly, the car wasn't quite as competitive as it has been. But what's going to be key to their season... The ups and downs are fine. It's just that they need both drivers scoring points heavily because Mercedes tend to get that. Um, McLaren could start getting in that mix, certainly with Lando, but Piastri has shown t- some performance at times too that when he has an updated car, if if a track suits it, he might put in the odd big result. Uh, and Ferrari obviously have both drivers at the sharp end as well. So the thing that's hurting Aston has actually been Stroll's results more than anything. And sometimes it's not been fully his fault, but uh, others it certainly has been. And yeah, this was probably more encouraging from that point of view that he was there on the pace. And as a final note, was the talking point of the weekend. In fact, it went longer than the entire race, right? Like it was the majority of Sunday. We can't talk around this fact. It was all of the penalties. I don't want to talk about the penalties or uh, even necessarily you know the various views on it. I just want to know... You know, what's the takeaway from this? Because, you know, once we've figured out what the finishing order is, it's only slightly different, but it's different enough to be annoying if you wrote them down the first time. The takeaway from this, is it driver behavior? Is it this track that is a problem? Is it the approach to track limits, which has changed in the last two years when it used to be much more variable and this probably wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago, notwithstanding this corner has always been a little bit of a problem. Like, what what is the next step considering that there is no way anyone wants to come back here next year and face even the smallest chance of this happening again. Yeah, the next step is definitely amending the track. Uh, The FIA had said it a number of times, actually. Um, Michael Marcy had made the recommendation years ago, and in last year's race notes, they made it clear um, to the circuit that they felt that they needed to install gravel traps at turns 9 and 10 because there's going to be lots of track limits issues, and there already had been. Now, what was strange is that in the sprint, we hardly got any the driver's in a racing situation but it shows a how much more margin they seem to leave during a sprint uh, b that was in the wet and i think that actually meant they probably just weren't quite on the same type of limit going through that corner uh, but it showed that if you needed to you you could stay within the lines the thing is the drivers it's so alien to them to really back off to the extent that you'll definitely get through that corner and not exceed track limits and it's onto a straight where there was drs and the, the potential to have a run up the hill and make a move into turn one that they just felt they couldn't afford to back off there and I think it shows you sometimes do have to sort of go okay we're never going to get the drivers to accept that this is on them and there is a way of stopping that and it's, it's put gravel there and the argument against has always been about the MotoGP bikes or, or any bike racing that races there doesn't want gravel in the runoff it's, it's uh, not helpful for them 
and they'd rather have um, asphalt so they can control a bike or slide without being flipped over and things like that. Understandable, but I think we're at the point where Formula One is now so big. And I, I say now, I, you know, I think five to 10 years ago, you, you couldn't quite make this argument. You couldn't demand that a circuit needed to tailor itself just to F1. But I think now they start to be able to. It may, it did make F1 look stupid. It wasn't really the FIA's fault because when you hear there were 1,500 examples that they had to at least look at to see if someone had gone off or not, that is nigh on impossible to police. And it is going to take time. So the only way to solve it is to stop that ever happening. And the the easiest way is to put gravel there and say, right, the gravel is going to be the track limit. You you can't go, if you dip a wheel in the gravel, you're, you're causing yourself trouble. So uh, that's how I think it needs to go. And I think the Red Bull ring know now. They've committed to 2030, so they've got a long-term contract. They can invest, I guess, in an F1 solution, knowing that they're going to get five, six years value out of it at least. So yeah, I think I think that's got to be done. I think they've got to find a way of, whether it's a strip of gravel, whether it's like a full-on gravel trap, uh, whether it's something that they are able to then replace it for motorbikes and they just have to invest some of that money that um, they're committing now with the longer-term contract, I'm not too sure. But yeah, that, that's got to be the solution because it clearly would fix it. I just don't know why those curbs that used to absolutely destroy the cars are so <laughs> off the table. I think it's time to bring those suspension breakers back. I feel like so surely that will teach some hard lessons. I quite enjoyed those, yeah. actually, in the sense that as long as they didn't damage the driver, I yes. was like, well, then don't risk it out there if you're going to damage your car. But now we're in a cost cap era. I did see yeah. the team's point where they're like, you know, a slight bit of wind at the wrong time that pushes you in there and it costs you a quarter of a million dollars with a new floor. <laughs> understandable that you're going to be unhappy about that if you go into gravel and the driver himself can then start to control it it might do some damage but gravel tends to do less damage and stuff they can repair so yeah i get why they're not so keen but i I was kind of like yeah that's a proper deterrent it's not as bad as a concrete wall would be but it's still a proper deterrent but uh yeah i i get why uh why they have erred away from that and max verstappen did say that was one thing he was delighted with with all this talk going on and everyone was upset about track limits and things he said let's just be glad that we don't have those terrible huge yellow curbs there um that were the ones that not only would damage your car but damage your driver as well yeah look there are arguments against it but maybe there's a compromise that can be found them we don't know next year we will find out will be one of the many questions to ask this time next year and chris just before i let you go this weekend it's back to back the british grand prix and if people want to hear more of you they can on our sister podcast pit pass f1 daily updates every day from silverstone whatever's going to be going on there uh, i'm sure it'll be less long-winded than the austrian grand prix but what have we got to look forward to at the british grand prix oh you've put the mockers on it now haven't you i'm gonna be <laughs> sat in that media center on sunday night waiting for a track limits decision or something similar because uh, it does seem to always happen in Austria but you never know it could happen somewhere else uh, yeah I think we've got um, a lot to look forward to in the sense of what response will we get from the likes of Mercedes Aston Martin uh, cars that we're expecting to be maybe a bit more competitive in Austria but certainly we're targeting Silverstone uh, Toto Wolf was saying yeah like we, we just can't wait to get there uh, but also McLaren as we spoke about just now uh, the proof in the pudding basically with the upgraded car that Oscar will get as well and, and if it has made a step at all tracks because that could be a team that starts nipping at the heels at the top four but also will be posing a headache to the likes of Alpine so uh, a lot of teams put a lot of pressure on themselves for this race because it's their home race so many of the teams being based very close to Silverstone so yeah there's gonna be a lot of focus I think on that and uh, and whether anyone can get close to Red Bull because it's a a very different type of track Uh, and as we saw in Barcelona Mercedes did look more competitive and that's that's kind of what they compare it to and 
Mercedes will have a major upgrade here too. So from Thursday, we'll probably be uh, talking about what it might be or, or, or any of the parts <laughs> that they will tell us about. And then from Friday, we'll be actually analysing the impact. It will be interesting. It's always a big one, the British Grand Prix. And you can subscribe to Pit Pass F1 wherever you're subscribing to the Strategy Report, your favourite podcast app. It'll be available there all weekend. The Austrian Grand Prix, race nine. Win nine of Red Bull Racing. Chris, it was great to have you on the show and talk about it with you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's good fun. You can't help but be impressed. Max Verstappen isn't satisfied to walk, jog or even run to his third championship. The Dutchman is sprinting the distance, doing maximum damage at every opportunity. Sergio Perez might have had a good weekend and Ferrari might be turning a corner, but this was yet another sobering round. Thanks very much to Chris Medlin for talking through it with me. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Amanato and I'll catch you next week for the British Grand Prix. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!